Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. It was another tense and fraught week, the eruptions of protests and anger over the killing of 46-year-old George Floyd, the man murdered by a former police officer who rammed his knee into Mr. Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Today on the program, the sounds of silence. The Prime Minister of Canada has to call out the hatred and racism happening just south of the border. And if the Prime Minister can't do that, how can everyday people be expected to stand up? It's a time about silence and breaking the silence. A time of breaking the silence on generations of systemic racism and battling against the denial. A time of breaking the silence on police brutality, especially against people of color. And in contrast, it's a time of silence. The Prime Minister's now famous 21 seconds of silence when asked about President Donald Trump's use of military force against demonstrators. Was that silence a diplomatic act of condemnation, as some believe, or an act of moral cowardice, as others argue? NDP leader Jagmeet Singh joins us with his view of what the Prime Minister should or shouldn't have said. Then, the Minister for Diversity and Inclusion, Bardish Chagger, joins us with how the government can tackle systemic racism in Canada. And then, defund the police. Together, we will keep taking meaningful action to fight racism and discrimination in every form. The status quo, where people face violence because of the color of their skin, is unacceptable. Prime Minister Trudeau says systemic racism is happening in Canada, but what's the government actually doing to stamp it out? Should police be defunded, as some activists are calling for? Black Lives Matter co-founder in Toronto, Sandy Hudson, is here to debate the former OPP commissioner, Chris Lewis, on that. Plus, militarizing America. Today, I have strongly recommended to every governor to deploy the National Guard in sufficient numbers that we dominate the streets. Is it legal for the President of the United States to order the military into cities to quell the protests? We put that question to the former U.S. Undersecretary of Defense, Christine Warmoth. She's here with her interpretation. All that, plus $14 billion goes to the provinces to relaunch and reopen. How much support is really needed? This is question period. Let's go get some answers. You've been reluctant to comment on uh, the words and actions of the U.S. president, but we do have Donald Trump now calling for military action against protesters. We saw protesters tear gas yesterday to make way for a presidential photo op. I'd like to ask you what you think about that, and if you don't want to comment, what message do you think you're sending? So that was the pause heard around the world as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau avoided speaking out against U.S. President Donald Trump's decision to use tear gas on peaceful protesters outside the White House so he could walk to a nearby church for a photo op holding a Bible. When Justin Trudeau finally did answer, he did express horror and consternation about what's going on in the United States, but again, he did not specifically call out Donald Trump or specifically address the issue at hand. Did that silence speak volumes about how he really feels about what's happening? Was it a diplomatic condemnation? Or does he need to use specific words and call out the President of the United States despite the consequences? Let's get reaction first from NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Good to have you back on the program. Hope you and the family are well. Uh, you called out the Prime Minister. You said he missed a moment to speak up and stand up. 
against Donald Trump and what he's done when he had that 21 seconds of silence. Do you, some thought it was actually diplomatic to avoid a trade war. Why do you think it was a missed moment? Well, I want to acknowledge that it's difficult to do the right thing. And there's a time and place to be strategic. When we're talking about trade, for certain, we need to have an element of strategy when it comes to how we negotiate those trade deals. But there's a time when, though, though, how, though it may be difficult, though it's hard to do, we have to call out dangerous rhetoric, hateful and divisive rhetoric. And what President Trump is essentially saying, threatening to go to war with his own citizens, dividing the population, creating more tensions, inflaming tensions, it's so wrong that it requires not just being denounced within the United States, but the international community has an obligation to call it out. And that's where the silence of Prime Minister Trudeau was not good enough. Silence has actually been the problem. People on the sidelines, passive bystanders, not speaking up when they see hate or discrimination or racism has been the problem. And the Prime Minister can't also be silent. Do you believe it was moral cowardice or was it strategic diplomacy? I think in this case it was cowardice. There is no question it was difficult to do. There's no question it's hard to stand up. But it's when it's hard to stand up that it's most important to do so. When you've got a president like Trump who is saying such dangerous rhetoric, such dangerous things, it has to be called out. But by how do you call it out? I'm just going to ask you how far you would go. There are some critics that say Donald Trump's you know, dangerous. Some obviously very support his law and order agenda. Uh, some have called him a racist. Would you, do you consider him a racist? There's no question that he has, he has continually repeated racist comments. He's continually targeted people for their background, whether it's people of Latin American descent, whether it's African-Canadian, African-Americans. He has been very clear in his racist rhetoric and the words that he said that are racist. I think it has to be called out. The international community has a powerful role to play in calling out people who are saying and doing things that are just wrong. And I think the government, uh, that the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, should have also said, listen, they're our ally, we work together, we have trade together, but what, what the president is saying right now is just wrong, okay. and it has to be called out. Um, these are, these are very, you know, there's a moral duty, but there's also the duty to protect the economy. And, and as you said, it's difficult. But if you were the prime minister, would you risk a trade war and openly say, Donald Trump, you're a racist? Well, I would want to be uh, effective and say, Mr. Trump, what you're seeing right now, while people are frustrated and angry and are taking to the streets because they're seeing police brutality, you're wrong to call them thugs. You are wrong to incite hatred against those people. You are wrong to tell the military and the police to beat up those people who are frustrated because of police brutality. That is wrong, President Trump. Don't do that. That is hurtful. That is going to create more... And, and if, there, if a trade war erupts with that, you'd be okay with that? I think this is where courage requires us to stand up, knowing the risks. Not being blind to the risk, but knowing the risks and doing the right thing. On the other hand, I want to also point out that there is so much interrelated trade between America and Canada that as much as Mr. Trump wants to threaten trade wars, the economies are so interlinked that when President Trump threatens to hurt Canada, it also hurts America. And we've seen governors speak up against it. So yeah, but I mean, he's done it. He's done it to our, our steel and aluminum. He's burned them for, for basically no reason. Certainly there's a risk, but at the end of the day, that is a calculated risk that we have to speak right. up when something is so wrong. Mr. Singh, good to have you back on the program this week. I appreciate your point of view. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir.
All right, some very strong words there from NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Now, on Friday, Justin Trudeau attended an anti-racism rally on Parliament Hill that was fueled, of course, by the killing of George Floyd. He knelt down in an act of solidarity. Still, some protesters chanted, stand up to Trump. Others cheered him. Let's get the government's response to what Mr. Singh has just said. Joining me now is the Diversity and Inclusion Minister, Bartosz Chagger. Always good to have you on the program and hope you and yours are, are safe. Mr. Chagger, Jagmeet Singh just called the Prime Minister's silence on President Trump an act of cowardice, and he called Mr. Trump a racist. What's your response to that? I'll have to say, Evan, what's clear is that systemic racism exists in Canada. Anti-black racism, anti-indigenous racism. With COVID-19, we've seen the return of the rise of anti-Asian racism uh, in Canada. So for myself, as much as it's, we can comment on other countries, we need to get our own house in order. Canada is proud to be an inclusive country, but what's clear is we have a lot more work to do if we want to be a truly inclusive Canada. That's fair, 100%. We have a lot of work to do in this country. But the Prime Minister has said uh, on Friday his job is to stand up for Canadian values around the world. He has done so, as many governments have done, criticizing the Chinese on Kong, on Hong Kong, criticizing the Saudi Arabians, criticizing Russia on LGBTQ issues. Many prime ministers have done so before. Why can't Mr. Trudeau, or should he, do the same more specifically with Donald Trump? Our government has been clear we do not condone racism and discrimination. We say that and we recognize racism and discrimination have no place in Canada. What is clear is that racism exists in Canada, there is discrimination within our institutions, within our hiring practices, and we have a lot of work to do. When Prime Minister Trudeau was on the international stage, he talked about our history with Indigenous peoples. And this is something that we need to reflect upon. It's not just good enough to be better than another country. In Canada, we should do the best that we can and we should make the changes that are necessary so that we actually have outcomes and results. And well, that's I, I appreciate that. Mr. Singh's point is that you can do both. Uh, he said, you know, that 21 seconds of silence, he said he was avoiding it. And he, for example, look, Jean Chrétien said no to the Iraq war to President Bush. Brian Mulroney clashed with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher over apartheid in South Africa. How can we expect the average Canadian to stand up against racism if, when asked specifically about Donald Trump's actions, which your government clearly doesn't condone, the Prime Minister refuses to say anything? I believe that the Prime Minister and our government are recognizing that we have work to do in Canada. Even when we came out with the anti-racism strategy in Canada, there was many people making commentary about why is it needed. What we see in our actions and the video footage that's been coming out within Canada is that we do have an issue in Canada and we do need to respond to that issue. And it's going to take federal leadership. If you look at the anti-racism strategy that was created by black Canadians, racialized Canadians, to lay a foundation on the way forward, the first pillar is regarding demonstrating federal leadership. And it will take federal leadership because every single one of us has a job so, so let's talk about, I, I want to talk about that, that, that federal leadership because you, you've talked a lot about it. So I'm trying to figure out concrete measures. For example, regarding the RCMP, there was an officer seen on video in Nunavut knocking a man down with his door. What concrete steps will your government take regarding the RCMP? 
And I'll tell you that's exactly part of my mandate is ensuring that I'm working with all federal departments and agencies. A step that we've already taken is ensuring that the decision-making table is more reflective of Canada. Have we gotten there? No. Is there work to do? Yes. Have we taken steps to ensure that we have a more open, transparent, merit-based appointment process? Yes. We see more diversity being reflected, but we're not there yet. And Evan, I'll say in regards to our federal institutions and agencies, we need to make sure that there is unconscious bias training. Racism is learned, and it's important that those behaviors be unlearned so that we can do a better job and have better outcomes. All right, I got to leave it there. Mr. Bartosz-Chager, good to have you on the program. Coming up. Should the police be defunded? That's a demand from some racial justice demonstrators who say systemic racism is ingrained in policing and it's costing people their lives. Would that prevent innocent deaths at the hands of police? We take that up with a debate between the former OPP Commissioner Chris Lewis and the co-founder of Black Lives Matter uh, Toronto, Sandy Hudson. Stay with us right here on Question Period. Prime Minister refused to answer directly when asked whether his government would be open to defunding the RCMP, one of the key demands from some groups protesting the death of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis uh, police officer. They want the government to slash police budgets in favor of funding programs that support and empower minority groups and call that call to action is slowly gaining a lot of political will. This week, for example, the Los Angeles mayor, Eric Archetti, uh, announced that he'd be cutting 100 to $150 million from the LAPD's $1.8 billion budget. The idea is to broaden the definition of security by pouring that money into things like poverty reduction or social housing. Will Canada see similar follow-through? Is defunding the police really a solution to stop the race-motivated violence? Let's find out. Joining me now is the former OPP commissioner and now the CTV public safety analyst, Chris Lewis. And also joining us is the Black Lives Matter co-founder, Sandy Hudson. She's in LA. Good to see all both of you again. Sandy, let me just start with you. This notion of mm -hmm. systemic racism inside police forces, the data on things like carding and incarceration rates in Canada is overwhelming, yet many political leaders like the Premier of Quebec deny there's any systemic racism in the police forces. What's your response to that? I think that's uh, particularly embarrassing uh, for Canada to be stuck in this uh, weird question of whether or not anti-black racism exists. I think the data tells us um, and experiences that, that people have uh, spoken about in the public for so long um, that very clearly anti-black racism exists in this society. And it also tells us that uh, black people's power in, in uh, political spaces uh, like um, uh, where laws are being made um, are not at the level where it should be uh, because if it was, they would not be able to make those types of blatantly ridiculous statements. Um, it really is quite an embarrassment and something that we need to move past so that we can focus on providing solutions uh, to the problems in our society. Chris, Lewis, let me go to you. You're the former head of the uh, commissioner of the OPP, the largest police force in Ontario. Uh, for many, the data is overwhelming. There's systemic racism in the police forces. Do you accept that? I don't uh, at all. I certainly accept the fact there is racism, uh, without a doubt. And uh, I mean, there, it is all through society and it is also in police departments. The problem I have with the word systemic is that that suggests to me that it's pervasive through the entire organization, including all the people, the leaders and the policies. And I just don't see that in policing. I see embarrassing cases of racism, you, extra use of force, 
And the carding situation was very slanted towards people of color, and that's all wrong, and it just can't exist. But I, I, I just noticed that it's not pervasive through every police department in the province, I, I just or in Canada. I just don't see that at all. Sandy. If I can respond to that, Evan, I just think that that is a faulty understanding of what the word systemic means. A systemic means that it is in, it is a part of the system. It is the way um, that uh, the system is constructed uh, is is how um, anti-black racism is functioning. And so when you see something, a statistic like black people in Toronto are 20 times more likely to die at the hands of the police, um, that is what we mean by systemic. I'm not talking about anybody's individual attitudes. I can't change those things and I don't intend to focus there. I'm trying to change um, the way that we carry out our our safety and security services uh, in this province, in this city, um, and beyond, uh, because quite frankly, our lives are worth examining how to change that problem that is so obviously embedded in the system. Chris, some say that when people deny that there's systemic racism, uh, that they are. As Sandy just said, they're missing the point. Did you appreciate what she's trying to say? I totally appreciate what you're trying to say. I just, right away, we go to Toronto and we go to the carding situation, which was abysmal. There's no two, there's no arguing it. I'm not here to defend the police. I just don't want the public to have the perception that policing is rife with racism across this country because I don't see it. It's happening in pockets. It's happening more in some municipalities than others. Certainly within maybe some OPP detachments, there's more than others. Just use that example. Or some divisions in Toronto. But this country isn't perpetuated by racism in policing. Some systems need to be fixed. We need to do better and need to continually make positive change. But I just don't, I just don't think it's fair to categorize policing in this country as being systemically racist. Sandy, uh, one of the ideas that has emerged, and you've been one of the people that have talked about this, is defunding the police. Uh, can mm -hmm. you describe why you believe that might be a solution? Absolutely. And just to respond to um, uh, that that last comment, like, you know, um, I'm coming to you with data that shows exactly how black people are being treated across this country and indigenous people by the police. And what I'm hearing back in response is defensiveness and conjecture. And I don't need that. We need to move to solutions. And that's what I intend to focus on. And so when we're talking about defunding the police, that is a solution to one of these problems. In Canada, we know that um, many of the people who die at the hands of the police were experiencing a mental health crisis. Um, and we also have in Toronto or uh, the Yakabuchi report that tells us that um, uh, that was released in 2014 and tells us that the police are not well equipped to deal with mental health crises. And so why don't we create a new service um, that a new emergency service where people would have the option to call uh, uh, experts who are trained to deal with the health needs and social needs of people who are experiencing a mental health crisis um, and, and that way, uh, those people maybe don't show up with uh, lethal force. And that way, uh, we can ensure that people get the support that they need uh, from people who are trained uh, to deal with that very particular complex situation. Chris, when you hear defund the police and you hear how it's defined, I mean, I, I get that people say, wait a sec, we need the police. But Sandy and others are talking about expanding the definition of security and, and doing, for example, so the police, uh, there's another force that can handle things like mental illness. Do you buy that? Do you think that's I, how I we should reallocate our money? 
I do for sure. I mean, it has to happen in a very methodical way. And Ayabuchi's report in 2014 resulted in a lot of positive change. A lot of it was occurring before his report, much since the whole community engagement model and bringing mental health professionals and different social services agencies and educators and others to the table to try and solve police issues before they become police issues is very important. That needs to continue. And that should result in positive change in terms of the need for the number of police. But in the meantime, you still need armed police and you still need, no, still need the ability to respond to incidents with firearms. And that that's a scary thing. I realize that. But it's a reality, police, and you need critical well, mass to deal with things. What you about, can't send what a mental health professional to a murder scene. Sandy, what are, there's a debate about body cams. So, there, people keep saying now, this violence has always been there. The only difference is it's being filmed. We've got to get body cams on everybody. Then the police unions will say, well, you want body cams? Okay, that's going to cost you. So you can't both defund the police and get body cams. What's your view on, on police wearing body cams? Uh, sure, and, and also just to respond to the last question uh, or the last comment, in the UK, frontline police officers are not armed, and I think that that is something that we can consider here as well. With respect to body cameras, I'm not in favor of those things. Um, when we take a look at the research, uh, it shows either that body cameras have no impact on a, a police officer's likelihood to use lethal force and in some studies shows that a police officers are more likely to use lethal force uh, when they're um, uh, when they're using body cameras we have all sorts of accountability measures already in place that the police do not respond to even when we see that they're acting improperly they don't change the way that they do policing and so I don't understand um, what seeing more of us die is going to do if the police have already shown us uh, that they are unwilling to change their practices. Um, I don't want to see more of us dying. I want us. I want this. The uh, the the police to stop killing us. And I think um, the best way forward to do uh, in terms of doing that is to to provide our safety and security measures uh, services right. in another way. Chris, last word on that body cams. What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean to say that the police are, are not willing to make change. That's not true whatsoever. Police leaders and officers are trying to make change. I think body cameras are great. They don't always cover all the right angles, but there's certainly cases that they really tell the tale, rightly or wrongly, on behalf of the police. And at other times about complaints of what cops said or didn't say, as the case may be. Guys, I have, this is an important discussion and a critical debate that the world is having right now. I want to thank Chris Lewis, former OPP commissioner, and Sandy Hudson, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Toronto. Great to have both of you on a really candid and important debate. Coming up on our program, though, U.S. President deployed the National Guard on Washington is threatening to send in the army in other states. Is America turning from a democracy, as some argue, into an autocracy? Former U.S. Undersecretary of Defense of, for Policy, Christine Warmoth, joins us next with her perspective. Stay right here with Question Period. Mayors and governors must establish an overwhelming law enforcement presence until the violence has been quelled. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property, of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. That threat sent shockwaves around the world. The president of the world's most powerful country vowing on Monday to use the military against demonstrators in his own country. Donald Trump's pledge to use the so-called Insurrection Act sparked immediate and widespread backlash, including from Donald Trump's former Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, who accused the president of dividing Americans. Earlier that day, heavily armed police 
used tear gas and concussion grenades to disperse a crowd of peaceful protesters so the president could pose with a Bible outside a prominent Washington church. Are the president's actions even legal? Is he inciting violence as a method of crowd control, or is it his right to do so? Let's find out. Joining me now is Christine Warmoth. She's the former under Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, who served under President Barack Obama. She's now the director of the RAND International Security and Defense Policy Center in Washington. Good to see you, Christine Warmoth. Um, what did you make of Donald Trump's threat to use the military and then what he actually did use them to disperse the protesters as he walked across Lafayette Park to visit that church for the photo op? Well, Evan, I was very surprised and very disturbed. Uh, frankly, it was it was really quite shocking, uh, and I think that's that's why you've seen the kind of backlash against the president's actions that you've seen. You know, causing former Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, who has been silent since his resignation from the administration, that he came forward uh, to state how, how concerned he was about the idea that we would use the U.S. military against our own citizens. Other presidents have used the Insurrection Act before. This is from the early 1800s. If others have used it, why can't President Trump use it? Well, the, the president, whoever the president may be at any time, has the authority to use the Insurrection Act. It is, as its name implies, it is there to allow the president to put down a threat to the nation. Ironically, in the past, uh, when presidents have used the Insurrection Act to bring the military out uh, into the streets, it has actually been to protect the civil rights of American citizens. So in, in recent years, it has generally been used in the 60s and 70s to protect black Americans who were integrating into schools, for example. Um, but, but using it or, or talking about using it the way President Trump did this week would be very different. We've seen the violence, and look, countries go through protests a lot. This is a, maybe a hinge point in history, the death of Mr. Floyd and what it's meant. But, you know, in your former job, does the, the president's view on these protests undermine the United States standing in the world, its moral and political standing? Say, for example, to criticize China for its ongoing crackdown in Hong Kong. Does the U.S., has it lost moral authority to do that right now? I think this is a, um, something I'm very concerned about. Um, I, I think on the one hand, the fact that we are having as much upheaval as we are experiencing right now in the United States is causing a lot of countries like China, like Russia, other authoritarian countries to look at us and say, you know, how can you criticize us and our human rights records when, when you have all of these racial problems yourselves. So, so I think there uh, we have a concern, but certainly the way that uh, President Trump has been using the military in Washington, D.C. in particular, I think does undermine the moral authority of our country uh, to talk to other countries about uses of force. One of the things we've noticed, and I think everybody's noticed, is the, I, the militarization of the police in your country. That when we see these protesters, these aren't just police on, on uh, patrol cars. Uh, we've seen police essentially driving tanks. Uh, is that an issue in your country, the, the, the heavy militarization of the police and passing on military equipment essentially from the Afghanistan and Iraq war, essentially now getting downloaded to police uh, precincts? 
The Department of Defense does provide uh, excess equipment to police departments around the country. We have a program for that. There's been growing concern about that program for some years now. And even in the Obama administration, there were um, initiatives to look at that and really question whether that that was an appropriate use of equipment. And I think, you know, you're absolutely going to see further scrutiny of those kinds of programs in, in the wake of what's happening now. Uh, there was a presidential task force a few years ago looking at the kinds of things that police departments needed to do to reform. And one of the recommendations they had was certainly to um, really kind of decrease the, the heavy militarization of the kinds of equipment that police departments were using. And as a final question, going back to the standing of the United States, it was pretty remarkable this week when you saw Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, so she doesn't want to be in the same room as Donald Trump. Uh, Justin Trudeau was asked to comment on, on Donald Trump. He had 21 seconds of silence. He wouldn't mention Donald Trump's name. I'm, I'm, you know, these are our closest allies. This is the Western alliance, as it were. Um, what's, you're the former Undersecretary of, uh, of Defense for Policy. Is that disintegrating before our very eyes? Is almost 75 years of an alliance uh, getting reshifted by these series of crises right now? Well, I think there has been a tremendous amount of damage done to the strength of our relationships with our closest partners, whether it's Canada, our, our other NATO allies in, in Europe, for example. You know, this administration has continuously criticized our partners, has started all sorts of trade disputes uh, with those countries. And I think there's a lot of damage. I think Chancellor Merkel feels like Time has shown her that she can't really work with President Trump. And so it doesn't, it's not, you know, it doesn't make sense for her to come here for the G7 meeting. I think there's a lot of repair that needs to be done to those relationships. And I, and I think we can, we can make those repairs. But I think also all of us, all of the, our countries need to work together to deal, frankly, with some real institutional reform to the institutions that we built up in the in the wake of World War II to help us essentially, you know, make all of our countries rise and be more prosperous. Those institutions have gotten very brittle in the last 10 years. And I think many people in all of our countries feel that those institutions have not served everyone equally. So I think there's there's real work to be done, repair work to be done. Yeah, it's a long process. I got to leave it there. Christine Warmoth, the former Undersecretary of Defense for Policy in the United States. Great to have you on the program. Always appreciate that. Coming up next, 21 seconds of silence on Donald Trump's response to the death of George Floyd. Is that enough to condemn the systemic racism from Canada's leader to Justin Trudeau's 21 second pause? Speak volumes about what he really thinks about Donald Trump and the militarization of America. The Scrum is next. I'll dig into that and lots more. We've got some special guests, including Toronto sociologist Akwasi Owasu-Bempus. Stay right here with Question Period. Reason it got to me is George Floyd's story has been the story of black folks. Because ever since 401 years ago, the reason we could never be who we wanted and dreamed to be in is you kept your knee on our neck. It's time for us to stand up in George's name and say, get your knee off our neck. Get your knee off our neck. 
Powerful words from Reverend Al Sharpton speaking at George Floyd's funeral. Floyd was killed, as we all know, after a white police officer rammed his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes. That death has sparked over a week of protests across the United States, around the world, and of course here in Canada. While most of the protests have remained peaceful, there have been violent images of police brutality and senseless looting. But it has also fueled important discussions about systemic racism, use of force, and whether police departments are too powerful. Should they be defunded, as we've talked about earlier in the program? And is it time for Justin Trudeau to stand up more specifically against President Donald Trump? The scrum is going to weigh in on all that. Molly Thomas is a reporter for CTV News. She joins us. Ian Bailey is a reporter with The Globe and Mail. He's in Vancouver. Our special guest today is Akwasi Owasubempa, who is a sociology professor at the University of Toronto. Great to have all of you here Today, Akwasi, let me just start with you. By the way, congratulations on your new baby, first of all, that's important. Um, there's a lot of denial about systemic racism in Canada. Even though there's no shortage of data uh, on things like carding, there is a shortage of other data. Just quickly, let's talk about that. When you hear from Premier Legault, there's no systemic racism in Canada or others, what does the data tell you? It tells not only the data, but history would tell a very different story, right? I think like, what needs to be acknowledged is when we're talking about systemic, and I prefer to say structural racism, what we're really talking about is the racially structured way in which our, our society has been and continues to be formed and the inequality that stems from that. And so whether you look at education, whether you look at employment, whether you look at healthcare, whether you look at the criminal justice system, of course, we see huge racial disparities uh, typically with black people and indigenous people faring negatively in a host of different outcomes. Ian, we've talked a lot about this and the need for more data. In your view, how is the situation in the United States played out here in Canada with our own very real issues? Well, the United States has obviously uh, galvanized the discussion in Canada. We see it in, uh, in marches and columns, uh, on the airwaves, a necessary discussion on 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 our own issue with race, uh, our own issues with policing, and uh, that, that's probably, that's not, it's not probably, that is a good thing. This should be a discussion that goes on. It should be a discussion that continues, uh, you know, on, onwards and doesn't end until change occurs, and uh, it's a healthy thing to have this kind of discussion, um, you know, going on, frankly. Molly, uh, we've had a lot of discussions about this. How is the debate over George Floyd's killing what has stood out from, for you in all the talk around this? You know, I think sometimes we ask the wrong questions, even as reporters. I, I, I look at, you know, the fact that we reproach the premier of Quebec and ask, you know, does systemic racism exist? That's not even the question. Here's the facts. Facts. Black people are 20 times more likely to be shot dead in Toronto. Mi fact. Missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls have less follow-ups for their families. Fact. If my last name was Singer Patel, I'd have a harder time finding a job than if my last name was Thomas. And so we need to, as reporters, to bring out this information and make sure that it's front and center and be talking about these conversations all throughout the year, not just when something shows up, uh, unfortunately, on, on film and we are able to see and the world's able to see it, but we need to be talking about this all year round. Uh, Akwasi, what about the, the issue of reforming systemic issues inside the police departments? One of the argues is defunding police and other is body cameras. Where do you stand on those? So, like, the body cameras, I think, is a bit of a Band-Aid solution. Like, I think the defunding the police is most certainly something we need to be taking seriously. And what that really means is simply a, a realignment of both 
the jobs that we're asking the police to do and the funding that's associated with that, right? We've got the police engaging in many activities that they're not well equipped to do. And unfortunately, oftentimes, especially when that uh, relates to issues of mental health and mental illness and dealing with people in those crises, uh, the outcomes are actually more negative than they would be if someone who was properly trained and properly equipped to deal with those issues would deal with. So as one of my students you know, nicely said in class uh, yesterday, uh, in a, in a, a re very real sense, uh, we're funding the police to fail. And we need to you know, evaluate those failures, evaluate what they're doing, and divert the funds um, that we're giving to police to do things that they really shouldn't be doing to other organizations or institutions to perform those functions. In, in another issue that's come up, and, and Molly talked about, you know, what questions are asked. Justin Trudeau was asked his specific view on Donald Trump. Now, this is our closest ally, our most important economic relationship. He had that famous 21 seconds of silence. The NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, was on this program earlier, and he called that essentially an act of cowardice. Others have said it was diplomatically strategic and the smart thing to do because it could uh, you know, risk a trade war. What do you make of that and, and the Prime Minister's obligation morally or politically to comment more sharply? Well, you know, I was watching that 21-second uh, instant uh, last night. It's a particularly strange thing to see for someone like the Prime Minister, who's a very skilled and experienced communicator. You know, I, I suspect the Prime Minister is playing the long game here. He has issues with the United States to deal with around borders, around trade, particularly borders, and sort of next steps involving the United States on this pandemic. And so he's being very cautious about what he says because he's playing to that larger issue. On the other hand, perhaps he was uh, singularly moved and distressed by uh, what happened in the United States, and so there was that. You know, the Prime Minister comes out here to British Columbia now and again. There, I've always had the opportunity to ask questions in scrums, and when the Prime Minister gets a question he doesn't want to answer, he has a singular talent for answering the question he wants to answer as opposed to the question he's asked. So it was a little bit odd that he didn't do that in this case. Uh, Molly, it was a bit of a Rorschach test, wasn't it? People that like Mr. Trudeau think it was the exact right thing to do. It was strategic and said it all. People who don't like him thought it was an act of cowardice. What did you, how did, how did you calibrate the reactions to that and, and the obligation or not to, to say something? I think, uh, Evan, as a, as a Canadian, you know, I, most people can understand the geopolitical complications here, especially when we're dealing with a volatile president down to the south that hasn't treated us, you know, like a neighbor, like an ally for the last few years. However, you know, as a visible minority in this country, it hurts. And I spoke to two black students this week, and we sat down and we had this tough conversation around race, and they were telling me, you know, when, when a prime minister gets up and apologizes for something like blackface, we expect him to go above and beyond to stand up for us, to prove the actions of those words, you know, to prove what it actually is. It's not just acknowledging, but it's condemnation of something that is wrong. And so for both of those students, they sat there and told me it was so hurtful for them to sit there and listen to him not do that. And so that's the, that's the tough place Canada's going to be in, especially when it wants to vie for a UN seat. It wants to be a global leader in human rights and wants to lead in many ways. Canada at some point is going to have to take a line in the sand. Obviously, Trudeau wasn't ready to do that on this issue. All right, hang yeah, on. We're going to continue. Let me just take a short break. I want to. I'll continue this part of the conversation uh, and lots more. Also, there's been a stunning allegation from a conservative leadership candidate who supports conversion therapy and accuses Justin Trudeau, get this, of supporting child abuse. We'll talk about that. Support for the provinces and lots more. We'll take a break. We'll be right back with question period. Welcome back to Question Period. So does 
Justin Trudeau have an obligation to speak up more forcefully against Donald Trump. We want to continue that conversation. Also a stunning allegation against Justin Trudeau from a conservative leadership campaign to talk about all that in the great reopening debate. The Scrum is back, Molly Thomas from CTV is back, Ian Bailey from The Globe is back, and Professor Akwasi Owosu Bempa is back. Um, Akwasi, I, you wanted to weigh in on this discussion just before the break. Uh, Justin Trudeau had that 21 seconds of silence. Many people regard that as smart diplomacy. Uh, even though he may want to have spoken, he doesn't want to risk a trade war with President Trump, who has already hit back at our industries like aluminum and steel. What's your take on that, on his obligation to speak up? Yeah, and I think he has an obligation to speak up, and the timing might not have been right. But you know, at the end of the day, as noted, we need uh, signaling and strong action from our political leaders. And with respect to issues of, of racism and racial violence, we need to look no further than the action, uh, verbal action and otherwise, taken by uh, world leaders and governments uh, around apartheid in South Africa, right? That wouldn't have been dismantled uh, when it was if it weren't for the strong words of condemnation from a number of different leaders around the world. And at, at some point, someone has to step up and do that. Yeah, well, Brian Mulroney spoke up against Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher about that. Kretsche, Ian Bailey on the Iraq war uh, against George W. Bush. So it's not like prime ministers have had no history of, of standing up to U.S. presidents. Well, you know, I'm, you know the, the debate that's going on in the United States, sparked by the, the George Floyd tragedy, is going on. And um, that's a good thing that it's going on, that because it may lead to change. It may also, you know, fortunately or fortunately, give an opportunity for the prime minister to have something of a do-over on this issue. Uh, Mr. Trudeau, you know, has a uh, sort of a, sometimes a gilded way of speaking, and perhaps down the road uh, events will make put him in a position to be a little bit more direct in his thinking on this, and we'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, Molly, I want to move to some stunning allegations that came from conservative leadership candidate Derek Sloan in a video conference. I'm going to show you what he said and this allegation. Check this out. Well, the liberals have said, no, you can't get counseling. And if, and if a parent, as a parent, you take your kid to get counseling for this, you can go to jail for five years. That's insane. That's ridiculous. But on the other hand, you're allowed to put your kid on these you know, invasive medical regimes, allowed to you know, give them these puberty blockers. You're allowed to literally cut off their healthy you know, breasts and other sex, sex organs. That is child abuse. I accuse Justin Trudeau and his government right now of child abuse. So Derek Sloan says he accuses Justin Trudeau and his government of child abuse because he, he opposes something called Bill C-8, which essentially proposes a five new criminal code offenses against something called the practice of conversion therapy, which essentially tries to convince people that they are no longer uh, LGBTQ. Uh, I should say that the Prime Minister's office called those marks reprehensible. So did uh, another Conservative leadership candidate, Peter McKay, called them reprehensible. And he tweeted out forcing a child into conversion therapy is child abuse and must be banned. Molly, in a week where we're talking about tolerance and understanding, what did you make of Mr. Sloan's accusation? Well, the child abuse word caught the internet by storm. I mean, people were talking about this all week. I, I think it's interesting. I mean, it plays very specifically into a social conservative base. Remember, there are many Canadians in this country that have very strong religious views. They have very strong traditional views if they come from other parts of the world. And they're, they're very concerned about the way that they rear and raise their child and what their children are exposed to and what, what they choose to expose their children to. So, uh, you know, uh, the Liberals here, you know, want to make it open to talk about gender-affirming therapies. Uh, the gray area for me always becomes, you know, what happens if, if a parent, you know, takes their kid to an imam, to a rabbi, 
testify to a pastor that says, listen, you're wonderfully made the way you are. What happens in the midst of that? And so I think there's actually going to be a lot more discussions. This is a lot more tricky than people think. And whether people come in and talk about it or not, there's a lot of people uncomfortable around this in this country. Yeah, and it does. You, you do wonder. Uh, now there's four conservative candidates. One of the, two of them are social conservatives. But does a guy like Derek Sloan, who continually says things that many conservatives regard as beyond just out of bounds, uh, what kind of power he may have in uh, in in the race to elect a new leader of that party? Well, it sounds like uh, Mr. Sloan is trying to sort of corral and energize support for his bid to to lead the conservatives. Um, Look, the numbers suggest that he, he, he may not make it the first place, he probably won't make it the first place. And, and this just sounds like um, you know, sort of a, a billboard language to try and marshal support um, you know, as the votes come in. Kwasi, uh, I, I, it's just you had talked earlier in the program about the data on uh, systemic racism or structural racism against black Canadians or indigenous, but we should not forget LGBTQ Canadians. Absolutely. When we look at the figures around hate crimes, um, you know, uh, gay, bisexual, bisexual, lesbian, transgendered individuals, uh, as a group, typically um, fare pretty poorly here as well, and are amongst the the highest with respect to the groups who experience hate crimes. And you know, uh, conversion therapy is, is is being prohibited specifically because, in a sense, it it engenders a form of victimization, right? Like this is like literally um, psychologically traumatizing people. And so I'm sure Sloan knows that. Uh, no person in this country would be banned from receiving therapy from a licensed therapist, right? This is all about the damage that comes from uh, the very types of practices that are being outlawed. All right, just before we go, Molly, $14 billion the Prime Minister pr uh, promises on Friday to the provinces to help them reopen. That is supposed to help with the 10-day sick leave that Jagmeet Singh had demanded that the provinces have yet to agree with. They want to buy PPE and support childcare. What do you make of that? I mean, almost every day, these are giant. That's more than half a typical budget. Yeah, it's massive money. I guess the Premier's calls, the weekly ones are working, it seems like. Uh, it's a lot of money. I mean, the thing that jumps out to me is childcare. I know 50% of the workforce is women. Those that are mothers, a lot of them wondering how they get back to work in this restart program. So obviously that's needed. But massive, massive money, uh, Evan. And I think it, it begs the question, when are we going to get a fiscal update in this country? Uh, I think about, you know, as I've been watching all these programs roll out emergency programs, I've been thinking my future children are going to pay for this. Now I'm like, my future children's children are going to pay right. for this. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, you just never know when this is uh, ending, either the crisis or the aid packages. Guys, i got to leave it there. Kwasi, Molly, and Ian, always great to share our mornings together. Thank you so much for that, and thank all of you for sharing part of your day with us. These are difficult times. We've said it a lot. Please take care of yourselves. Hug your loved ones from a safe distance. I'll see you tomorrow on Power Play on CTV News Channel at 5 p.m. Thanks so much. Take good care.